Hello, everyone. Welcome to the American Blue Economy Podcast. I'm your host, Admiral Tim Gallaudet, CEO of Ocean STL Consulting, former Deputy Administrator of the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration, or NOAA, and also a former Assistant Secretary of Commerce, and before that, the Oceanographer of the Navy. We're a monthly offering by the American Shoreline Podcast Network and brought to you by Coastal News Today. The American Blue Economy podcast brings together leading voices in the ocean, coastal, and Great Lakes-based economies to expand awareness and collaboration, identify positive solutions to address the many challenges to the ocean economy, such as conflicting uses and climate change, and provide thought leadership on keeping the blue economy at the forefront of American conservation and prosperity. In today's episode, we look at NOAA's National Marine Sanctuaries, and there are many contributions to the American blue economy. But before we begin, I'd like our listeners to know that our media team at Coastal News Today is looking for sponsors. If you are interested in becoming a sponsor, please contact Tyler Buckingham. He's at tyler at coastalnewstoday.com, or you can go to coastalnewstoday.com slash advertising. So to begin, I am just so delighted to uh, bring on board my guests and friends from NOAA's National Marine Sanctuaries. Uh, As we record this, we are wrapping up Capitol Hill Ocean Week, sponsored by the National Marine Sanctuary Foundation. And it's just basically a week-long celebration of these national treasures that are like America's underwater national parks. So first off, we have Kate Thompson. She's the chief of the Communications and Engagement Division of the Office of National Marine Sanctuaries. Kate, so glad to have you on the show. Thank you, sir. I'm so happy to be here. Can't wait. Yeah, yeah, right on. We also have Grace Botita Williamson. She is the National Recreation and Tourism Coordinator for the National Marine Sanctuary System. Welcome aboard, Grace. Thanks a lot, Tim. I know that was a lot of words, so I appreciate it. Really happy to be here. All good, all good. And last but definitely not least, we have Dr. Steve Giddings, the senior scientist for the National Marine Sanctuaries. Steve, uh, it is just a thrill to have you with us. Hey, it's an honor, Tim. Thanks. Right on. Well, shoot, let's just get to it. Kate, you're the communications director. So why don't you just introduce our audience to what the sanctuaries are and give us an overview? Well, National Marine Sanctuaries are these places across our country. And when you think of the most beautiful ocean and Great Lakes places, that's what sanctuaries are. They are a system of sites that are um, marine protected areas, you could say, or now they're kind of like the national parks of the ocean. We like to relate them to because most people know what a national park is. So when you when you think of a sanctuary, the word doesn't quite fit because they're they are more like parks. We, we of course, want to ensure that people have and are able to enjoy our national marine sanctuaries through sustainable use um, of them. And so, you know, that's what these national marine sanctuaries are, like the Florida Keys, that all of the Florida Keys is a national marine sanctuary. We have four off the coast of California, um, a, a, one off of, of the state of Washington. We have uh, a few in Hawaii and as well on the East Coast in Gray's Reef in Georgia and Stellwagen Bank off of um, Massachusetts. And we also have Great Lakes. The Great Lakes are our sweetwater seas. They're just as important as our ocean. And we have Thunder Bay National Marine Sanctuary and our most recent Wisconsin Shipwreck Coast National Marine Sanctuary. So these really are some of the most amazing places protecting our both our natural and cultural resources that you think of are our most special underwater treasures. 
Absolutely. I've been to several. We'll talk about those trips uh, shortly. And thank you for that overview, Kate. Uh, I'm going to Grace. Grace, I think I didn't introduce you as the National Recreation and Tourism Coordinator uh, for the Marine Sanctuaries. And tell us about your job and how you promote those activities in the sanctuaries. Sure. Well, as Kate said, you know, we try to, as we're talking to folks that live on land mostly, we try to really associate ourselves with national parks. People know what parks are. And for the Park Service mission, it's very similar to ours to protect and restore natural and cultural resources. And we use opportunities like recreation and tourism um, to really connect people to those places. And so my job is to insert that messaging, making sure that we're talking about the sustainable use of our sanctuaries, of waters in general, um, through just responsible use. So thinking about know before you go, um, what type of gear you're bringing, how you're doing it, how you're interacting with wildlife. So for me, it's really about all about protecting the resource, but doing it through engaging people into those places. And so they will learn to care about these places and remember what a national Marine sanctuary is and bring that home, that, that stewardship um, thought with them every day. Well said, well said. I, we'll talk about some of the cool experiences I've done, you've done, we've all done in the sanctuaries, but that's a good first intro uh, to that aspect. But now with Steve, Steve has an interesting job because these sanctuaries protect resources like kelp forests and coral reefs and shipwrecks. And uh, to do that in a, in a responsible way requires a management plan. And those management plans are science-based. So Steve, your job is the, as the science coordinator, could you give us a, a sort of what you do every day for the sanctuaries? Happy to. Um, the, the conservation science that occurs in sanctuaries, and we call it conservation science because it's applied to conservation. And uh, we don't do necessarily basic research in sanctuaries, but we, we're either characterizing resources to understand where they are, how they work, and what, what it takes to make them tick. Or we're monitoring their status and trends of those resources, or we're conducting applied research to help us understand things better. So, so that's the basic categories of science that are, are done in sanctuaries. And then a lot of our work is to understand better the impacts and the controls on uh, resource qualities and things like understanding climate change, since it's a, such a gigantic overlay of impacts nowadays. We didn't used to appreciate it as much as we do, but now we know it's such a huge driver. But understanding all the other drivers of, of ecosystem resource qualities like fishing impacts or human uh, marine debris, invasive species, uh, the impacts of uh, traffic, uh, vessels and noise, etc. How that changes water quality, how it changes the risk to human health. All those are key areas of interest to our science communities across the marine sanctuary program. And then after we understand impacts, understanding how we might restore and intervene to, to uh, actively modify for a desired outcome uh, those resources. That's that's where we're trying to get to, the ability to control impacts or um, restore if they are affected. Right on. I get that. And I think our audience today know this program. We talk about conservation quite a bit. And, and so with that in mind, Steve, your background is very interesting because you grew up establishing uh, the Flower Garden Banks, National Marine Sanctuaries in the Gulf of Mexico, which are really special in that they're pretty far offshore and uh, they were sort of unknown territory when you were beginning your undergraduate and then graduate degrees uh, degrees at Texas A&M. Could you share with our audience a little bit of that story? And, and for our audience, by the way, Google 
Steve Giddings, the best job ever. And you'll come up to a great webinar that, that Steve tells his whole journey on, on the Gulf Coast. And I encourage everybody to check it out. But can you give us a, a little bit of that, uh, Steve? Well, um, you opened a Pandora's box if you want me to start talking <laughs> about the flower gardens. But that, that title says it all. It was the best job a person could ever have to manage the flower garden sanctuary. And it was my first job with Noah. So it was really a, a rewarding job. But uh, it was a very underappreciated place at the time, except by those of us who knew it. But it, when it became a marine sanctuary, my job was to make it meaningful. And it, Noah thought at in the beginning, it would be primarily a research site, but it's turned out to be much more than that. Education outreach flourish out there as as do, you know, it's a real prized place for diving. So, uh, Tim, you're going to get to experience that sometime pretty soon. And I think you're going to come back with accolades that, that you may talk more about it than I ever have. But um, <laughs> I, I had a wonderful job to build the the whole program of the sanctuary, the mooring buoy program, the, the research program, the education program, et cetera. And um, I did that for about eight years until I ran out of gas and did most everything that I could do with the budget we had at the time. Since then, it's grown exponentially from where I left it, because uh, partly because it got more money over the years. But now they have a research vessel at the Flower Gardens that goes out regularly and studies it uh a lot more than I was ever able to. But we did a lot of good characterization work throughout the uh, 70s and 80s. And then when I had the managing job in the 90s, uh, in the early 90s. Yeah. And and how far offshore are they from Galveston or so? They're about 100 miles offshore and uh, very um, not immune to, but um, remote from a lot of human impacts. So that's why they're in such good shape. The flower gardens coral cover has actually increased since the time we first measured it back in the 70s. It's gone from below 50% to almost 60% coral cover. And I defy you to find any place in the Atlantic with anything remotely close to those numbers. Most coral cover on reefs in the Atlantic now is down around 5 to 10%. Gosh. Yeah. Well, I can't wait to go. We are going in July, my wife and I, and I am excited. These uh, reefs, I've seen the imagery and they're just uh, stunning. Uh, a lot of the photos you've taken, Steve, and that, that brings me to Kate. Kate, in your communications job, you you produce so much awesome content. Uh, and I, I one of the periodicals you publish is the Earth is Blue magazine. Give our audience a visual description of, of, of what some examples of what are in that magazine and so you could get, describe like what, what the sanctuaries look like to our listeners. Sure. So Earth is Blue was actually a campaign that we started. Oh, gosh, I, I think we're, we're over 10 years now, uh, almost 11 years in our Earth is Blue campaign. And it really was and it started as a social media campaign because we, we at the time we only had about, I don't know, maybe 9000 people on our Facebook and so we, we wanted to say, you know, these are the most amazing places in our country underwater. We need to get this out to the public so that they better understand, obviously, because it's out of sight, out of mind, whereas a national park, you can drive into it. Um, and unless you're a diver, you don't really get a chance to see these places. So Earth is blue. And, and this, is, this is a concept of when astronauts look down at Earth from space, they notice that the earth is blue. And actually, Kathy Sullivan, who used to be, um, you know, she used to be the administrator for NOAA um, back a while ago, she was an astronaut. And she actually did a video for us for our one year camp, for the one year part of our the Earth is Blue campaign saying, 
that's exactly what I noticed is that it was just the earth was blue, not green really or brown, but more blue than than brown and green. So that is kind of where the name for for the campaign came from. And that, you know, we thought we could just basically do a photo a day and a video a week to tell the story of our National Marine Sanctuaries and really get it out there. And so the Earth is Blue magazine came about uh, just to say we really would love this periodical that we could people would want to keep, that they would want to just keep it on their coffee table because it's more like a book of beautiful photographs than it than it really is. Um, a magazine that you would throw away. And so we looked at it as our, really our accomplishments for each year and our amazing photograph for each year. And so that's where this get into your sanctuary um, photo contest came from is, you know, we take lots of amazing photographs when we're out in the field in places like flower gardens. And by the way, sir, it's one of the most amazing sanctuaries you'll ever dive in. I can't wait for you to Cannot experience wait. it. Um, uh, so, but that we really wanted to get our, our, Taxpayers, because frankly, that's who you know pays the bills for us. Is we want them to be able to give back to you know what we have out there, and so the Get Into Your Sanctuary contest, of which Grace can can of course tell more about because she runs it. Um, but that's why we do that every year is we want everybody to share their photographs from National Marine Sanctuaries to us so we can put them in our magazines, so we can put them on our website and in our social media um, and be part of the Earth is Blue campaign. And matter of fact, a while ago, there were actually T-shirts, I think when it first started that, you know, hey, if you take a picture with your with your get in, you, you know, your Earth is Blue shirt on, it will highlight it right away. Um, so anyway, the get into your get into your sanctuary contest is, is going on right now. Uh, that photo contest just started and we, you know, just really want people to start submitting their, their photos. Cause we, we got so many last year. I forget, uh, Grace, how many we got, but it was a lot like 300 or 400 submissions of photographs last year. So, um, just a really great contest for people to get involved and to help us out with our earth is blue campaign. Yeah, very good. I, I remember seeing the magazine for the first time and I was I was hooked right away. A big humpback whale and the, it was one of those split shots where half of it's underwater and half of it's above the water with a humpback very close and a calf. And I saw that. And that's that really is typical of so much of the imagery in the magazine and on, on, on the web. Uh, beautiful coral reefs with manta rays, for example, and flower gardens, humpbacks and stellwagon bank, amazing corals in a graze reef and reef fish. It's just and shipwrecks in Thunder Bay and, and uh, the Wisconsin Shipwreck Coast, all just <laughs> stunning and awesome. Um, and then so, so uh, Grace, uh, in this contest, other imagery you see is of the recreation activities that you uh, endorse. Uh, tell us about some of the pictures you've seen that, that caught your attention and you remember. I will say that one of my favorites is actually from, I think it's from two years ago. It is a... Um, a young girl, I think she's probably about, I'm guessing, I think she's probably like six or seven. She's on top of a surfboard with a lay on her head and she, it was taken by her uh, grandfather. And that photo for that year, I think won both both the sanctuary recreation theme, but also one for the for the year as well. That will, I will say that was one of my favorite ones. But 
the photographs we get are fantastic. And actually last year, just to correct, it was 700 photographs that we received entries wise. Yeah, we averaged about 300, but last year was a big push to 700. So um, really fantastic. And we're looking forward, we're actually having more prizes this year. Last year was our first year that we were able to work with our National Meat Sanctuary Foundation to have prizes from Clean Canteen. And this year we're looking at some really cool prizes from a from some photograph um, industry folks. So really looking forward. Other fo- other um, photographs that we've received on the recreation front, people kayaking is always a big one. Whale watching is another one. And Tim, if I think I remember that you got, you entered one as well or two maybe last year. I um, did, yeah. You know, family pictures of families, friends, you know, folks doing things in outside in National Marine Sanctuaries is just something that's really hard for us to capture from, you know, when we do our photo shoots because folks are out in the water. Right? It's really hard to figure out who's actually going out there until you experience them. So we love getting photos of people enjoying themselves in all types of ways in National Marine Sanctuaries. I, I, I love seeing them too. It just, it just further energizes my interest and in, in, in passion for the ocean and the water. And so um, I, uh, I did submit one where Karen and I went whale washing uh, at Stellwagen Bank, and that was just amazing. So so many awesome uh, sights of flukes and and breaches, and and this is the sanctuary is just a short trip from Boston, and uh, really a delightful day for us. And uh, and I will be doing it this year at Flower Gardens, and I'll probably go to Mallows Bay on the Potomac River where there's a, a ghost fleet of shipwrecks, and we'll kayak out there. And so if I'm allowed to submit more than one, I'm going to be doing it. You are you are allowed to submit. And this year, we actually have five categories. So we have sanctuary life. We have sanctuary recreation. We have, I'm sorry, you're going to, I'm trying to figure it all now. Sanctuary views. We also have sanctuaries at home. So folks that can't get into a national marine sanctuaries, what does that look like in their own home? And we've had some really great drawings and of like chalk drawings of underwater creatures have been really beautiful. And then we have a new one this year, Sanctuaries Around the World. So we started the Sanctuaries at Home a couple of years ago during COVID so that folks could, again, experience it from home and share what they think about sanctuaries. But we realized we had so many submissions from India and all places around the world that we were not expecting. So we've created a new category now for that. So that is, as Kate said, open until Labor Day weekend. Labor Day. All right. All right. I'm going to get cracking. <laughs> get cracking. And underwater is all good. And we do ask that everyone, you know, really hears for our wildlife viewing guidelines. So that's whether underwater or above the surface. But, you know, again, that sustainable use of sanctuaries and the joy on people's faces and just a variety of underwater critters has just been amazing to see. But 700 last year, we're, we're hoping to, I think we're hoping to hit a thousand, but we'll see how it goes. Wow. Well, I'm going to help you there. Okay, <laughs> I'm, good. I'm on a mission. It's so good, Grace. Uh, Steve, this is interesting. Uh, you brought something up about the fact that the flower garden banks on the Gulf of Mexico, the coral cover has increased over time. Uh, and I think that's probably partly because you, you through your efforts and those, your successors have, have managed the sanctuary and that's the purpose of them. And that's why I was really pleased uh, during my time at NOAA to help you or help the office expand the flower gardens by uh, by threefold in area um, but the that that conservation work and the science that supports it you mentioned also the outreach component uh, all, it's like a continuum when you learn about things and they and then you're conserving them then you can share that with the public and increase their interest could you provide some examples of those activities across the sanctuary system I can try. Kate and Grace deal a lot with outreach and uh, product development and so forth with the educators and the outreach specialists in our different programs. But, but at the flower gardens in particular, you know, we've had all kinds of people 
be able to experience the flower gardens through the generosity of some of the, you know, the benefactors of the sanctuary out there. Even the oil industry at times has paid, uh, uh, made uh, Shell, we used to have, get money from Shell to do something we call Down Under Out Yonder, which was allowed teachers from all over the country to compete for spaces on boats and go diving for several days with really? us. Yeah. And they would take back to their classrooms and, and some of them were art teachers, for example, and they'd started generating art products or projects around the flower gardens. So, so just that site alone is a good example of the ways you can create uh, opportunities for um, taking your voice places you'll never go through education and other people. Um, you just expand the base of our, our supporters and then um, and get them to spread the word about the good news about these sanctuaries. And we've been able to do that through the educational system and the, uh, you know, the art projects that were generated by artists around the country at places like the Flower Gardens. And I know there are examples all over the country like that, that, that Kate could probably speak really well to. Uh, but, you know, curriculum development has been spawned by sanctuary science and, or at least been supported by sanctuary science. So schools are now benefiting uh, by, you know, through teachers who, who pick up on those curricula and use them in their own classrooms around the country. Uh, so those are a few examples of of the ways that we can spread the word. Uh, I remember at the flower gardens in the early days, our our big goal was let's get in National Geographic someday. Well, it happened. <laughs> All the sanctuaries got in. We had a special issue, uh, not special issue, but a, a big article in one of the National Geographic. Um, I can't remember what year, but uh, they. Uh, some photographers went all around the country to the different sanctuaries and got ex exquisite photos. And the flower gardens photo was a manta ray photo. I recall uh, Flip Nip Nicklin getting the photo and being in the water and me telling him, Flip, if you want, I can get all those people out of the water so you can get a picture of that manta ray. And he said, oh, no, 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 the people are the picture. Uh, and it, in the end, it was in the, in the, uh, the magazine with it looked like a couple legs sticking off the edge of a manta ray, like it had grown legs, <laughs> you know, like a tadpole. But uh, it was a beautiful picture, and, and the people were, were the story, no question about that. So that's the kind of thing that can happen when you provide opportunities uh, in, to get people, just get them into your sanctuaries to see what it's all about. And uh, some of those folks are turn out to be very influential types, like Flip Nicklin and others who, who we give opportunities. And uh, next thing you know, you're in National Geographic. That's such a good story. That's great. I, and if our audience has not heard of Flip Nicklin, Google him, his name, and you'll see some incredible imagery. Um, that good story there. And, and another example, when I was in Thunder Bay and visiting there with Kate Thompson, and we actually dived on two wrecks together, and she rescued me because I was a novice and didn't fill my BCD, but that's a whole other story. Um, but ultimately, that, what's neat about that sanctuary is they, in their outreach, they have a robotics competition and they teach high school kids how to make remotely operated vehicles. And there's a giant tank that the vehicles uh, are tested in. And I really think that's a really cool science and technology and outreach uh, effort and example that happens all across our sanctuaries. Um, so we're going to you, Kate, and uh, this is a really good thread. And uh, and uh, if, yeah, I'd love you to just tell more about how you reach out to folks and the sto different stories around the system or examples of that, which I've seen myself, but I don't want to do all the talking. So um, anything comes to mind that you'd like to t tell our listeners? Sure. Well, I, I love that you just mentioned the 
the the ROV competition. That's something I started actually when I worked at Thunder Bay way back in the day. Really? Um, oh, yeah. Good I job. started that program there uh, for our system. It was through the Marine Advanced Technology Education Center out of Monterey. Uh, they started that ROV program, and it's just a great way for students and teachers to be involved in the STEM sciences. And STEM is, you know, science, technology, engineering, and math. Um, and that's something obviously NOAA is is very proud to, you know, do through because we want to have the next generation of scientists and and engineers. Um, coming up. So that's why we like to do these programs. And we use remotely operated vehicles in, you know, almost every day in NOAA, right? And exploring, you know, looking at the, the bottom of the ocean, because we know more about the surface of the moon than we do the, our actual oceans, which is, which is really uh, sad to think about. Um, so, I mean, you know, that's something that, you know, our Office of Exploration and Research within NOAA um, us in sanctuaries, you know, we're working all the time with with partners and researchers and universities to actually, you know, get down to these depths of the oceans that we haven't seen to see what's there because it could be, you know, the, the, the cure for cancer is there or for for other things, and and it's just so important to ensure that we map these areas and know what the bottom of our oceans look like. So that's where the remotely operated vehicles come in, and that's how we connect with the students um, in in those programs. But yeah, that, that one's near and dear to my heart. I love that program. Um, but the, I think the biggest thing is, you know, these, place, these places you know, are on our coasts and, and not all of our states in the United States are on the coast, right? So we have to be able to connect with landlocked states within the United States. Uh, and so we like to do other programs. And, and I love the, the program I used to run. It was called Oceans Live. And and we, we called it telepresence, where we would we would bring these these sanctuaries and these underwater special places to Kansas and Iowa and you know these other states that don't realize that what they do in their backyard actually impacts the oceans. Think of the flower gardens, right? And the flower gardens um, is you know one of the biggest watersheds of the flower gardens is the Mississippi River, right? And, and the delta of the Mississippi River and the rivers that flow into. I, I forget what the statistic is, Steve. It's like I don't know three quarters of the United States flows into the Gulf of Mexico, basically. So the, the, yeah, these places in Iowa and, and Missouri and you know are and other places are running into the flower gardens, and it's impacting the resources in the flower gardens from your backyard in Iowa. And so when we do these telepresence type activities or distance learning activities, we're trying to reach those schools, those um, those STEM clubs, those boys and girls clubs across the country with messages about why they need to care about the ocean and why they need to do things in their own backyard for our ocean. Um, and so I think the best memory I have, and, and Steve will probably smile here. And I'm, by the way, I call him Dr. G. Ah, okay. <laughs> That'll like be that. a new nickname for you. Uh, Dr. G is the man. Um, anyway, so we did a, 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 a an Aquarius mission in the Aquarius habitat. We lived underwater for nine days. The craziest experience I've ever had. And Steve's actually saturated four times. And when we say saturated, that means that you don't come up. You stay underwater and you can go out and dive for like nine hours at a time because your body is saturated, right? Yeah, so yeah. It was one of the most cool experiences I've ever had. And I did the live feeds from the bottom of the ocean to places all over, not just our country, but our world. 
um, telling essentially the, the concept was if reefs could talk, what would they be telling us? And so, you know, it was just, you know, Steve had mentioned that, you know, on the Eastern shoreboard, the, the coral coverage is like five to 10%. Well, I think in the Florida Keys, it's like 2% now. And it's just so sad. And so, um, it's just a story that, and of course, we're doing all kinds of restoration work down there with Mission Iconic Reefs and all kinds of partners to try to bring back the corals that that used to be there. Um, but, you know, those kind of engaging things where the kids can talk to you living under the ocean and just get inspired and want to become that person. They want to become you. They want to become the next scientist that helps to be these Mission Iconic Reef savers, you know, that you know, they want to help save these oceans. And that's what our education and outreach programming in sanctuaries is for, right? We, we don't want to just do research and science to do research and science for nobody to know about it. Uh, that's really our three-prong, we call it a stool in National Marine Sanctuaries, where you have education and outreach, you have research and science, and you have the resource protection and management, right? So they all work together. And um, because we can't, we can't just do that research and science and leave it on a, on a, on a uh, you know, bookshelf somewhere and nobody knows about it. It's got to be meaningful. And that's what Steve was saying with the conservation side. It's got to go back to that resource protection because that's the purpose of National Marine Sanctuaries are to protect those resources. And if nobody knows they're there, then why would they care? And so that's why that that circle, that three-legged stool is so important uh, for our management of National Marine Sanctuaries. That's so well said, Kate. And you just touched on uh, probably nearly every episode of my podcast over the last two years. I've <laughs> talked about ocean exploration. I've had the famous explorer Bob Ballard on it. I've had a de some dedicated shows on education and outreach and STEM. Jill Zandi from uh, Mate was on a previous episode. And just my most recent one, I had some students uh, from North Carolina State University, and they were describing their work on a uh, on the Monitor National Marine Sanctuary, the wreck of the USS Monitor, the Civil War ironclad, the first National Marine Sanctuary off North Carolina, and the work they were doing with ROV imagery to document the biodiversity on the wreck and and uh, the invasive species, the lionfish, which were all over it, by the way. And we'll, we're going to talk to Steve about that in a second. But uh, this is that was really great that you just did that. I, I, uh, so for my listeners, if you're new to the show, uh, go go check out some of these previous um, episodes that touched on everything Kate just said. And, uh, and maybe just a little more detailed, but really delightful. Thank you so much. Grace. Uh, so some of our members might not even know about the sanctuaries very much. What are some of the activities you know, when you want to get people into the sanctuary other than diving that people do uh, around the system when they visit? Sure. Well, there, there's really a ton. So anything you think about when you're going to the beach to, you know, sailing, sailing a boat across the world, right? It's all about the marine areas and ocean and Great Lakes. So folks can take a stroll. You know, many of our sites are connected to the land, um, not all of them, but quite a few. Take a stroll, enjoy the ocean, sit by the side and just feel the breezes and smell the, the great ocean air to you know, taking a wade in and swimming and snorkeling. Um, yeah, diving is a little bit extreme for a lot of folks, but even getting on top of a surfboard or a wakeboard or getting on a sailboat or going um, even kite sailing. 
to I'm trying to think. I'm just even enjoying wildlife. So I'm a bird watcher. I'm a whale watcher. You know, you can spend the time on the shoreline watching from ashore all the birds and great bird migrations coming through on both our coasts as well as Pacific Pacific Islands and even in the Gulf of Mexico to great whale watching opportunities. Um, you know, we have seabirds, we have dolphins, we have sharks. Um, some folks love to get out and even tag so that, you know, we cross that recreation tourism into stewardship opportunities as well. So, you know, how do we capture volunteers or even international tourists that want to help out with some of the efforts that we're doing? We do a whale count in Hawaii um, in January, February of each year. So there's great opportunities really for everyone. I think one of the biggest struggles that we have is that folks are coming to our ocean Great Lakes and not realizing that national Marine sanctuaries are there. So when you were talking about outreach, we also do outreach with recreation tourism. So, you know, not only do we have the photo contest, but we also have an annual event called Get in Your Sanctuary, which was how the photo contest got its name, so that we really try to be more proactive and showcase the great opportunities that National, um, National Marine Sanctuaries support. Um, we try really hard. Part of my job is working with the outdoor recreation and tourism industry. So we do a lot of outreach with them as well. You know, again, how do we showcase the great things, the great opportunities, whether it's, you know, coral reefs or eelgrass, the things that we have and manage that provide recreational opportunities. Um, you know, also we this week is actually the end of National Boat. Uh, national, excuse me, National Fishing and Boating Week. Depends, I guess, on which one you're really interested in. And so we're out there. We provide great content online. We um, we also are on social media as well and really trying to provide these opportunities on how to fish and enjoy fishing and boating. Um, and actually this past last weekend and then this weekend, we're providing recreational fishing clinics to get families outside. Um, whether it's elementary school kids or military families or um just really the general public at large. How do we teach people how to enjoy these great places? Again, sustainably, you know, can you bring like last weekend, we went fishing as part of our our experience at Mallows Bay Potomac River. My kids caught, yeah, my kids caught some invasive, invasive catfish and we had, we made ceviche this week. So, you know, yeah, it was, it was fun. They were, they, there was a big fish that they caught. So, you know, and just watching that enjoyment again, that's why we do the photo contests and, yeah, it's just a great, it's a great way to connect people to places to help that awareness of how important the oceans are to us, but also also why national marine sanctuaries are so, are so important to exist. Oh, excellent. I have a giant smile on my face right now. I, yeah, it was fun. It was a hot day, but it was a lot of fun. They were kayaking, they got on boats, they came home with a fishing pole and gear, and we had three huge catfish. Wow. In our That's board. so cool. Yeah. So I quickly, here's my f story. I have been diving in Thunder Bay on shipwrecks with Kate. Really cool activity I never did and want to do this summer is stand up paddleboard over some of those wrecks that you can see from the paddleboard. Um, yeah, so water's that's, so clear. I know, it's beautiful. Next year, this summer, hopefully, um, I will be doing flower gardens uh, where Steve is going to be getting off the boat. I think I'm getting on in July. I'm going fishing in the Florida Keys National Marine Sanctuary with Karen in August. And I have been whale watching in Stellwagen Bank off Boston with her, with her too. Done the same in in Monterey Bay uh, with some of the NOAA employees on the West Coast, which where there's a magnificent sanctuary there. And I'll, I'll just stop. But ultimately, that's that's my mission right now is to get into every sanctuary, hopefully, which I'm doing with another group I profiled on this show, which is Force Blue, Special Forces Veterans Working in Marine Conservation. And we have a 15 for 50 campaign where 
We want to hit all 15 of the sanctuaries and do a conservation mission uh, in, in to celebrate the 50th anniversary of the sanctuaries. And uh, we've done one already in Mallows Bay, and uh, we got 14 more to go. Well, team, I just I, I just want to make a very shameless plug. So I'm hoping that when you and Karen go down to Florida Keys, I'm hoping you're going to be able to employ a Blue Star operator. We are. It's a okay. it's Captain Will Benson who won. Uh, oh, fantastic! Yeah, yeah, he won that award. Kate, what was that award called? Uh, in the Chow Award at the yeah, the Wave Maker Award. Right. Something else you should do before you go is we have a stories from the blue uh, about Captain Will Benson. Oh, so if you go to sanctuaries.noaa.gov slash slash Earth is Blue, within that there are these longer longer. Um, episodes uh, about the people that work in National Marine Sanctuaries. Uh, and he's one of them. So check it out before you go down there and be with them. He's a really amazing man for sure. I have seen it actually, because I was at that award and ceremony uh, at the gala that we were at last night, the, the 2019 version where he received, or 2018, I don't recall which one, but he received that award and I, I was there and met him. And there's a picture somewhere out there of me and him together. Uh, I got to find that before I see him again. But thank you. Uh, well, this is all hap- This is really fun, I have to say. But we, we probably do want to talk about some things that are threatening the sanctuaries. So people maybe feel uh, some urgency to get into them and help conserve them. And, and Steve, one of your areas of expertise is combating the invasive lionfish that we're seeing in the monitor sanctuary. We're seeing the Florida Keys. We're seeing in the flower garden banks. Can you talk to us about that work? Happy to, but before I do that, I want to mention that uh, I think you should include me in your 15 for 50 because this is my 50th anniversary of my dive certification. So shouldn't we be calling it 15 for 50 over 50? And then (laughs) you're you're in, you're in. I'll at least carry your dive back. (laughs) Okay, right on. But yes, uh, um, and my trips to the flower gardens this summer are partly to celebrate my 50th anniversary of diving. But, that's um, so great. That's but, so great. Congratulations. Lionfish. Yeah. And one of those trips is about lionfish. So yeah, that's a nice transition. Um, with the lionfish problem, lionfish invaded the uh, Atlantic Ocean back in the 1980s, probably aquarium dumps, people who didn't want their lionfish anymore because they ate all their fish. But uh, And then they exploded in population around 2000 and, and after, after that, ever since. Um, and nature still hasn't quite figured it out and doesn't have many natural controls that are, are keeping it in check. So lionfish populations are still high and out of control and are eating fish in some places at, at numbers and levels that are unsustainable and they're just destroying ecosystems in certain places. So that's the problem. And they reproduce super fast and they eat a lot um, and nothing eats them. So People right now are the control on lionfish. And in shallow waters, they're, they're quite easy to spear. So people are spearing them all over the place and doing really well at controlling their populations in some places. In deep water, it's not like that because nobody's collecting them except the few that happen to swim into lobster traps and other fish traps. Uh, and so, the, yes, they'll sell them because they're very good meat, but they're not big fish. So it's a tough market to crack and create a seafood market with because the fish are pretty small and they're hard to catch for commercial fishermen right now. Uh, like I said, though, spear fishermen do very well in shallow water. And there are derbies that have sprung up and they're doing quite a good job collecting lots and lots. We just had a derby in Destin, Florida a couple weekends ago and 24,000 lionfish came in from 
145 divers. Holy cow, that's a big number. You you can see the numbers, big numbers, high catch per unit effort. Um, And that particular area, northeast Gulf of Mexico, seems to be particularly (laughs) prolific with lionfish. Um, So uh, I've been working over the years to try to develop a trap for deep water uh, collection of lionfish. And that test is currently in testing for, um, I mean, that trap is certainly in testing for commercial use, but uh, the tests are just underway and we don't have results yet. I am a bit worried about those traps. They worked quite well around artificial reefs in the Gulf of Mexico when we tested them in the early stages, Uh, but trying to pull lionfish off natural reefs in deep water might be more difficult than artificial reefs because there's so much good habitat and food on a natural reef. Uh, Getting them to swim over to my traps uh, might be more than we can do, but we're not sure yet. So we're we're going to keep trying until we can't do it, or hopefully until nature figures it out and starts controlling populations itself down in those waters. Otherwise, we're looking at potentially catastrophic effects on commercial species because of the consumption of their prey by lionfish in deep water. And what kind what of commercial species? Oh, anything from grouper, snapper, jacks. Um, you know, tilefish, anything that you, that we catch in deep water commercially uh, could be affected either through consumption of the food that those animals would normally eat um, or the juveniles of those species when they can fit in a lionfish mouth. Uh, so we're quite worried about that problem. Uh, but, but it hasn't showed up in the commercial numbers quite yet, but that would be a delayed effect because if they eat the juveniles of commercial species, it's going to be five or six, seven years before you realize that there's no juveniles entering the adult population. Wow. So do, are, you, are you saying we have a lot more research to do on this? A, a, a fair amount of research in deep water to look at the populations and how they're changing uh, of lionfish and their prey. Uh, and those ultimately the commercially important species. So yes, there's definitely work to do on lionfish, but there's, but lionfish are, there's a whole market development concept behind lionfish that involves, yes, the meat from lionfish becoming part of the seafood market and creating a supply chain for it, but also they're producing jewelry from lionfish and leather from lionfish. Really? So yes, if you catch a lionfish and get it to the right person and they process that fish properly, they can send the leather off to Inversa, who who processes it and sends it to high end fashion designers around the world, or uh, or small comp, uh, small time businesses around the Caribbean, who ladies who basically have started uh, jewelry businesses, and then you know they supplement what little income they have with pretty big income from jewelry. And uh, some of these women have come out of desperate poverty and are doing very well now with the. Um, businesses they've developed. So there's a lot of ways to create more value per lionfish than just selling the meat from it. Very interesting. Wow. And I do know that this is one example of several. I know that I think urchins in, uh, are hurting the kelp forests on the West Coast. And and uh, I guess mussels in Thunder Bay, Kate, isn't that right? There's a kind of invasive species up there. Yes. Uh, zebra and quagga mussels, actually, they come in through the bilge of the vessels that come from, um, you know, across the ocean in different countries across the ocean because they, they're shipping into the Great Lakes and their bilge, of course, water comes from those other countries. And then they bring in the mussels and the other invasive species within their bilge. And then they drop their bilge after they offload uh, all of their, their stuff they're shipping and they're 
and then of course taking the new fresh water and it just that's how the invasive species get into the great lakes which is a shame in that you know it's starting to cover all the shipwrecks so you can't you can't really see the beautiful well-preserved wood because it's in the great lakes and it's fresh water and in in unverse unlike the salt water where the wood boring organisms just rip apart the wood you know you're talking over century year old schooners um, laying on the bottom, perfectly preserved until these, you know, invasive species were brought in. Um, they're cleaning up the Great Lakes. It's clearer, but you can't, unfortunately, the shipwrecks are covered with them. Right. You pointed some of those out to me on our dive in 2018. Uh, once I recovered, <laughs> you recovered me. Uh, but that was oh, interesting. You did well, sir. <laughs> uh, it, it was just great. To, you were you were such a, a patient um dive guide and it was such a fun day by the way and i I, one of the stories about that day is uh, the superintendent jeff gray was pointing out to me how the town of alpina which is the sanctuary is adjacent to has really built up a sort of small really thriving blue economy from the sanctuary based on people coming over to dive in it from both across the nation and internationally and, and we had this really terrific uh, kind of end of the trip where we all met at a brewery and uh, and we just had some great times together. We uh, Ending in the afternoon after doing two dives and boating all around and touring the visitor center. It was just such a great day. And I know you you got your start there. Isn't that right, Kate? Yes, I did back in 2000. And you're a, you're a Michigander, isn't that right? I am a Michigander through and through. That's great. Well, <laughs> I, I love your state and I absolutely love that sanctuary and hoping to go back this summer. Um, cool. Well, I would, by the way, I could talk to you all for hours and I wish I could, but, uh, we do have to keep this show uh, on a timeline, sadly. Uh, but thank you all for this. I'd like to just ask each one of y'all, Kate, uh, first, if you have two things, if you have a a sanctuary moment or uh, that you remember that was special to you that you want to share, and then any other closing thoughts for our our audience. So to begin with you, Kate. Oh my goodness. <laughs> That's a tough one. Yeah. I've been to pretty much all of them, except for being out to the monument. That's about the only one I haven't been to yet. Um, and I, each and every one of the sanctuaries has its own experience. And I, I think I would be remiss by saying I could pick my most favorite one because they are all so unique and they all need to be visited. Uh, but, but how about, how about, so our audience is probably uninitiated share just one that might uh, be (laughs) fun and interesting. Of course, of course I will, I will share, I will share one. Um, I have to say probably would be, we, we stayed. So the Florida Keys National Marine Sanctuary, um, the dry Tortugas is, it's a part of the National Marine Sanctuary and within the Dry Tortugas is the Fort Jefferson, and that's a national park. Um, we stayed out there overnight, which is a treat. You don't, that doesn't happen very often to be able to stay. I mean, I mean, I think it was us, our production crew and one other person that were, I mean, it was like, it felt like the bottom of the earth is what it felt like. Um, but staying overnight out of Fort Jefferson, it, the most clear sky you've ever seen. Um, but it was the first time that I saw a green flash and I don't know if you know what a green flash is or not, but yeah, I'm sure you do, sir, you know, being a, a Navy man, um, that you, you know, when the sun sinks and it goes into the ocean, if you watch closely and the, the ocean is calm and flat enough 
and clear enough, you will see a green flash when the when the sun goes into the water. And, and the a- atmosphere is right. That, and the atmosphere is perfect. And I saw the most amazing flash that night. And it will always stay with me because the experience was just so epic and so special. And just I felt like, again, we we're at the bottom of the earth and no one was around. And here's this amazing green flash which just kind of just shows me because some of my favorite experiences on the water is when the sun reflects and you see all of those sparkling diamonds and you just sit back and go, this is why I do my job and why my job is so amazingly special. Um, So that's my story. I love it. I love that. Kate Kate Thompson, communications director of the National Marine Sanctuary System. Thank you. And Grace Botita-Williamson, how about your story? Okay, so mine mine is more accessible, I think. Um, I am dive certified, but I can say I have not dove in quite a few years. I'm not going to tell you how many. Um, so my love is actually, I have two. One is Thunder Bay and one is Mallows, Potomac River, National Marine Sanctuary. And both it's because people, whether you're a, you know, a full-on ocean-blooded, need-to-get-out-to-the-depths person, or you're just exploring and just kind of stumbled across either one of these sanctuaries. They both have great opportunities. So if you don't want to get your feet wet, you can explore them. So you mentioned about Thunder Bay and the clear water and the wonderful shipwrecks are at a great depth that you can even paddleboard on. They have a glass bottom boat that, you know, one, their visitor center is amazing. Whether you like um, history or not, I'm not a big shipwreck buff, but I love the Thunder Bay National Marine Sanctuary Visitor Center. And then really getting- yeah, but, yeah, and I'll say our engineer on the line right now, Tyler Buckingham, he and I are big time nautical buffs. And that visitor center is for anybody who loves maritime history. It's really history. the bomb. It, it really is. is. It's amazing. <laughs> it's really pretty exciting. But then to get to go on a glass bottom boat. So when I went, it was not- warm enough to go snorkeling or diving or even on a glass bottom, oh, excuse me, even on a stand-up paddle board. But we went on the boat, could see it through the bottom. It was really phenomenal. Um, and then the other one was actually this past weekend, like I mentioned about the fishing. It was great to see, you know, even if you don't go in the water, you can still fish from the shoreline. That's great. You did it from the shoreline. We, no, we didn't, but you could. There were actually plenty of other people that were there that were not part of this group uh, that were fishing. Okay, okay. But even the kayaking, you know, just you don't have to get your feet wet. It doesn't take a lot of technical expertise. It's fairly inexpensive to see the shipwrecks, but also the osprey that were out there and the the bald eagles that were flying all over the place. There's a bald eagle I've nest that's pretty yep. see, Yeah. And the terns that are out there, like the fish and just the enjoyment of people enjoying themselves whether they know it's a national mean sanctuary or not when we were there it was we had this whole motorcycle crew of sorts come and they were just doing day trips around and they had no idea it was a national mean sanctuary and to kind of be able to talk to them and see the looks on their faces when they realized what they stumbled upon was just for me it was really great to be able to be there and see that happening but you know my kids went fishing and we went kayaking all on the same day and we had a nice picnic lunch and yeah. So I, while I love snorkeling, those are two that are super easy and family friendly to get out there. That is wonderful. Thank you so much, Grace. That was, that was beautiful. And last but not least, as I said, Steve Giddings, the science coordinator of the National Marine Sanctuaries, can you share a moment that our audience might appreciate? I, I'm not going to mention the flower gardens other than uh, one, just to say that one of my great life experiences down there was seeing the mass coral spawning that happens. And we can go back to that one of these days and have a, a long discussion about that. But 
Let's talk about Mallows Bay for just a second, because I had my own experience there that was really life-changing for me and um, gave me an appreciation for the sort of the social science value of marine sanctuaries. And I was kayaking in Mallows Bay wondering, why did we designate a mothballed fleet that's you know, burned to the waterline almost as a national marine sanctuary. And um, at the same time, the hundredth anniversary of the, of world war one was coming up and, and I had just learned about my grandfather's history in world war one. And he was a, a member of one of the most well-known uh, groups of soldiers that went and participated in world war one, the fifth uh, Marines. And um, as I was kayaking around that place, I started to understand what the value of this marine sanctuary was, and it had to do much more with the commitment of our country to our troops than anything else in my head at the time because of the way I was thinking about my grandfather's history at the time. And um, I realized there's a there's an appreciation for marine sanctuaries you can have that goes far beyond the economic value of the place or even the scientific value of the place. Uh, you know, the attitudes you have about a place, how much you care about it can can differ so much from place to place. But at Mallows Bay, that place, that time meant so much to me, even though it was a, you know, a junk heap of, of metal sticking out of the water. It's, it's not that at all. It's our, it's a story, a story of history that I could, that became personal to me. Uh, and so to me, that was one of the greatest experiences I ever had in my own program, even though I've been in it forever and seen some wonderful natural events across the country and, you know, around the world. But, but no, that was more personal and it made it um, meaningful to me in a special way. You shared this with me, Steve, and that is really special for our listeners who know history. Steve's grandfather was a, was a devil dog, the term the Germans used uh, for the 5th Marines uh, during World War One, a, a storied uh, uh, military unit, the, the, one of the most in our, in our nation's proud history. And to, to, to know you, Steve, and, and have that connection being a career naval officer is uh, very inspiring. And, uh, and that's, that's another aspect of our National Marine Sanctuaries. And it seems that we could just unfold, uh, continue to unfold pages and pages of the, the amazing aspects of these beautiful places I want to thank you all, uh, Steve, Grace, and Kate. This has just been one of the funnest shows I've ever had. And I can't wait to reconnect with you in a sanctuary at some point soon. Um, And just thanks so much for being on the show in this latest episode of the American Blue Economy podcast, where we looked at the national treasures that are our national marine sanctuaries. Please join us for our next episode in July. This is your host, Admiral Tim Gallaudet, CEO of Ocean STL Consulting. Thank you for joining us, shipmates. I look forward to getting underway with you next time.